They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. But the bye, 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 bye. But the bye, 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Come Hey, do badders. Welcome to Bad Boy Running. Um, sometimes in the podcast, we get our guests because current guests then mention someone who they're like, oh, you've got to speak to them. They'd be brilliant. And when we were speaking to Damo about two months ago, he mentioned Josephine as someone he was working closely with. Um, and he actually mentioned her in the book that he was also talking about. So we had to go out and get her because I've realized we've almost neglected psychology as a subject on the podcast because there just don't seem to be a huge number of um of sports psychologists out there who really are used in running and even if there are i've not found that many and we we've never really had many people themselves who've said i need this or i want this so we we thought we've got to get her on and thankfully she's agreed so welcome on the podcast dr josephine perry (laughs) thank you for having me absolute pleasure um how how does how does one go about becoming a, a sports psychologist and, and like when did when we drawn into that that direction uh, mine was really specific so I actually started my career as a journalist and then I went into corporate communications and in 2013 I went to do Ironman Melbourne and I was standing on the beach in Frankston which is just outside Melbourne where they do the swim and the waves were totally terrifying. I was, I was, I was scared. <laughs> and um, the guy on the tannoy said, "You guys can't control those waves. You can only control how you feel about them." And I was genuinely one of those light bulb moments. If it was in a movie. There'd be a big light bulb switched <laughs> on above my head, just going, "Oh yeah," because I am not particularly sporty. I was mm. always the last kid at school out of the changing rooms, like trying to stay in warm as long as possible. And never really felt like an athlete, but I have always been quite brainy. And so suddenly I was like, oh, I could I could use my brain to, to be a bit better at sport rather than just all this effort and sweating. And it totally clicked me into thinking about, well, how does this work? There weren't actually that many books at the time. Hmm. Um, and I wasn't having a brilliant time in my job. So I quit my job. I went back to university to do um, what we call a conversion course in psychology. So you, you basically do an undergrad degree in a year um, to understand basic psychology. And then I did a master's in sport and exercise psychology. And then I had to do two and a half years at what we call supervised practice, where you're basically on your own, but you've got a supervisor you can go to and get support as you kind of learn how to be a sports psychologist. Um, and I and- I fully qualified in 2018. So I've been going for kind of yeah four and a half years on my own now and um and how did that that swim go you didn't get knocked out in the waves and like dragged to shore after this massively confident <laughs> moment or did it work out well that would so ruin the story wouldn't it <laughs> um I've, I've seen videos of the swim on youtube and they make me feel really nauseous it was horrible they did cut it short um goodness knows where i came back into shore it was a long long run to transition um, but I survived it. Um, the bike was great. Run was also okay. I've got my fastest Ironman time in that race. Um, 
So it, it actually had a nice happy ending and it gave me a brand new career. <laughs> and and in terms of, I guess, psychology versus sports psychology, would you say are there are the principles fairly similar? Does it divert um, early on or um, are, how, is there a big difference in, in the approach? I think when you learn sports psychology on a master's course, which is what everybody has to go through, it is very much focused on athletes who are doing absolutely fine and just need to learn some extra mental skills. And that might be things like learning imagery really effectively or learning how to relax better or learning some goal setting. So there's some very specific mental skills that you can learn that you can read in a book that will help you be a much better athlete. That's what you learn on a master's course. I found when you go into private practice and you're working with athletes, most of them will benefit from learning those, but they don't come and see you because they're Mm. doing fine and they Mm. want to learn how to be better. They come and see you because there's a problem. And that's often tied in with much wider psychological issues. Um, Most of the time in my practice, it's people with performance anxiety. Probably 90% of people I see come because um, they are feeling just way too anxious before they go and do a race or mid-race. That part of their their brain that wants to talk to them and talk them down and talk them out of doing something stupid like an ultra race will be telling them to stop and it gets very loud and very powerful and they want to learn some skills to be able to handle that much better. Um, So I think a much wider understanding of psychology is really valuable. Um, But there are absolutely mental skills that anybody can go and learn and will be really valuable for you as a runner. But most people tend to see a psychologist because there's something else going on behind that. And what what level athlete would that be? Because I'd almost associate the fear of, uh, of getting to the end and all that with, in my head, I'd assumed people who see sports psychologists were more likely to be the elite level because it, it requires that level of commitment to the sport to pay for a psychologist to be worth it. Whereas someone who's not at that level, I I almost would assume probably would soldier on or just wouldn't see, get as much value out of finishing an ultra, say someone who could go to the Olympics or, um, but is, is that not the case? Not at all, actually. I mean, my clients are a total mix from people that race at the Olympics through to people that want to do their first park run and they need some motivation to do it and they need some support along that way. So it can be a total mixture. Um, And often, actually, lots of my clients are young people who are struggling with that kind of anxiety and the pressures and all the other stuff you've got going on as a teenager. and, and a lot of performance anxiety in particular comes, it's kind of, it's social expectations of us, what we believe others think we should be able to do and feeling like we need to live up to them. And it, it's very different from when I grew up, when we didn't have social media, to a mm. teenager today who's got all of these pressures on them. Plus, every single time they go on Instagram, they can see all their competitors training really, really hard and feeling like they're not at the same point in their journey that they should be um, and comparing themselves very often can really kind of up the ante on some of those things. 
So I, it's absolutely for any level. I could you can you almost see if you were to take a cross section of the people that you meet in ages. Right, right. They're the people who are on the Strava age. Then that's when Facebook kicked in. That's that's generation. And then that's when Instagram and then like that's TikTok. Can, is it without oversimplifying? Can you almost directly correlate the effects of these tools on issues that different slight, not whole generations, but different, slightly different age ranges? It, it's interesting. My, um, my PhD is not actually in sports psychology, it's in social psychology around the media and the impact of the media on us. And I completed it in 2006. Oh, wow. It's totally, <laughs> totally out of date. Yeah. It is. My supervisor still comes to me saying, like, you really should publish it. And I'm like, it's irrelevant because social media did not exist yeah. when I wrote my PhD on how people communicate through the media. So actually, even though it feels like it's been in our lives a long time, mm. it hasn't actually been in that in our lives for that long. And when you start to look at when things developed, they're, they're all within a generation. Um, what is really interesting, though, is tools like Strava and ways, not necessarily of comparing ourselves so obviously, but ways of measuring ourselves. Mm. And we now have myriad of ways we can measure ourselves. I can look at my watch right now and tell you what my respiratory rate is. I can tell you what my heart rate is. Irrelevant to my current performance, but we've got all of this data at our fingertips. And often we find ourselves measuring ourselves against data that is comparing ourselves with others or with things that aren't particularly relevant to the kind of person we want to be or the kind of performances that we want to give or the values that we've got in life or what our purpose is. And yet, because that data is so easy to measure, and we've got all this tech that helps us do it. We come down to that base level of measurement, hmm. even though it's actually pulling us away from the things that are important. Yeah. So I guess before it was just the bathroom scales and your times would be, and maybe a chat down the pub to someone who's, loose-lipped and over-exaggerates how much they're training. When I started triathlon, you used to get a results sheet in the post two or three weeks later. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah, nice. Yeah, you used to enter, you used to buy 220 Triathlon magazine, and I only started in 2004, like my 19th year this year, yeah. You'd get 220 magazine, you'd look through the back, you'd see all the races, you'd work out which ones to enter, and you'd send off with an envelope so they could send you your stuff back. And that's how, and, and a check. And that was how we entered races. And you, whereas I did a 10K yesterday, I had my results emailed to me before I'd finished running home from the race. Hmm. Like, well, even, even park run now. I mean, it's completely yeah. free. You just rock up, you don't have to sign up or. There's, there's, yeah. and, and we measure our park runs. And that means every single Saturday, at 9.35, we know if we are a better or worse human being than we were the week before, if we're measuring our self-identity and our self-worth and all of those things through our running times. So the technology, whilst brilliant, can also have some really strong implications for ourselves and how we feel about ourselves. Um, and would you say that, because it, it almost seems as if these, the, 
the measuring devices make it easier to be self-destructive. The um, social media almost magnifies the impact of peer comparison. But is it is it the case that before people are in sport, the people who are likely to have psychological issues are the people who have the psychological issues in sport? Or does sport almost have a... a an altering a very different way of interplaying with our psyche that means that people who might not have issues um with just a, a non-sporty life suddenly then are drawn to competitiveness or drawn to comparison in, in ways they might not have been otherwise oh there's there's so many answers to that um i think it's worth reflecting that when somebody has say something like perfectionism as kind mm. of a key trait um, we won't necessarily have perfectionism in all all areas of our lives. Often when I talk to parents about children that are coming to see me and I'll say, are they perfectionistic? And they'll be like, goodness, no, their bedroom is an absolute state. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, they don't care about their bedroom and the yeah. tidiness of the house. Perfectionism is not going to cross over boundaries to be an issue there. But if they feel like a runner and running is who they are and they were going to go to a party and introduce themselves and somebody says, oh, who are you? And they're like, oh, I'm a runner. That perfectionism is going to be very, very powerful because yeah. it matters to them. And being perfect in that environment reflects on who they are as a person. So those kind of traits that we might have might show up much more strongly in our sport. They might not show up at all because actually if our sport is just for fun and we're more worried about our job, that's where some of those traits might show up hmm. um so it's it's not that we're coming into it with kind of a loaded personality that that could trigger things more often than not it's about how we feel about what we're doing and how much that matters to us and how much we connect that with our self-value and our self-worth yeah true because i i there's a guy I used to know track who it always amazed me and and almost I was slightly jealous but frustrated how little he cared about how much faster he was than me and how good he was at running. He would rock up the track every now and then, he'd smash some races, and then he'd just disappear down the pub for three months and come back again and thrashes again. And I'm like, if I was you, I'd be so good. But that's me, right? I wanted to be good. He didn't really care. But one of the reasons he might have been so good was because he didn't care. Maybe. I think he was just naturally far faster than I was because as well. But But also that. Yeah. If he cared, it would have become a bigger deal. It would have become a stress. When Mm. when something is a, a big stress, when it feels like doing it could be threatening to who we are, has a bunch of physiological changes that go in on our body makes it much, much harder to do what we want to do and our performance falls. So often it can be very helpful to be the one that cares the least. There's no threat in that situation. Mm. If if winning a race or doing well in a race is going to indicate whether you are a good or bad person, instant threat, instant physiological changes in your body, instant cognitive ruminations about what's going on, much much harder to go and actually pay attention in the right way on that race and hammer it. Hmm. 
if you don't care, you just rock up. You just tell your body what to do and you roll through it. Do well. Brilliant. Go down the pub for three months. It's and so, so when we look at things like Ultra then, because there's an element, because you almost need to be on that spectrum to to train enough to actually finish it. So there's a you 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 need to you need to be investing in fear, investing in importance, investing in the status of the result a bit to to because of the useful tools to get you to success, surely. For some people that's very effective. But if you are doing an ultra, you're going to be out there for, say, what, max 24 hours if you're really pushing it. You are going to be spending three, four, five, six months in the build-up training for it. You need to love the training. You need to love the process. If you can't fuel yourself for four or five months on fear, it's just unsustainable and makes us feel rubbish. To, to do well at it, we need to enjoy the process. And we know there's a theory of, of motivation called self-determination theory that talks about there being three types of motivation. There's a motivation. I cannot be bothered. I'm not doing this. There's extrinsic motivation where we do something for the accolades, for the times we get, for the money it might bring us, for the T-shirt of a medal or whatever else that's physical, external to us. That can be quite powerful, but only for so long. And then there's intrinsic motivation, which is where we have some basic needs that if they are met, we will do that running, that cycling, our sport for the love of it. It is not about what we get from it. We do it because we enjoy the process of it. Those needs, a sense of belonging, feeling like we're not fitting in because that's squishing ourselves in somebody else's environment, but feeling like we're genuinely part of, of that crowd, that we belong there. And I find I've spent some time at ultras because um, I work with a lot of ultra runners, but my husband's also done some ultra running. So I've spent many hours standing by the side of a road cheering. And what's always amazed me about the ultra community is how friendly it is, how welcoming it is. I loved watching when Damien did um, the Pennine Way. One of my favourite things about it was that John Kelly spent the time <laughs> he was running tweeting all the kind of normal stuff that Damien would be tweeting about the environment. And you see all the runners who have got records, but they will go out and help somebody try and beat their own record. I don't know any other sports where you've got a community where people look after each other and help each other feel like they belong so much. So that belonging is a really important, powerful element. Then you've got mastery or competency, feeling like you can do what you need to do. And that's where the training is important because you need to know you can run X amount of miles or you can beat that cutoff or you can go up scary hills with slippery bits or whatever. And then you've got autonomy, which is feeling like you've got a choice and a voice over what you do and how you do it. And I think often that's what actually propels people towards ultras, because it's not like you will have to follow the 16 week marathon training plan. It's mm. it's much more figuring out what works for you and how to do it for you. And I... if you bring those things together, you don't need to scare yourself into training. 
you're you're ending up doing it because you love the process and you love the training and that makes you don't just have 24 hours of enjoyment or difficulty but while you're doing it but feeling like you're working towards it you've got all of those months where you're actually doing something you love and and could mastery be it it, it doesn't have to be mastering the whole thing it, could it be a day-to-day mastering of feeling like you've never run before and you've now run for a minute absolutely so it's not about i am the most masterful person in this race i am going to be the winner or set a new record it's about i often say with clients it's about not feeling like a wally when you go out running or it, mm. that feeling like i can do this i've got this don't have to be the fastest don't have to be the best but i can do what i need to do i have got the skills that i need to do so i've often worked with ultra runners who've got fears about running down hills Hills up there, fine, but the fear of running down a hill quite fast, uh, where you know you can make up time, you should be able to do it, feels really, really scary. And so being able to proactively work on that skill, so when they go to their next race, they're no longer afraid of the downhills, is really powerful to going, I've got this. So, So we really actively try to get our clients working on noticing what they are afraid of where the fears are coming from so you can actively go and do something about it we, we so often tell each other oh don't worry about that you can handle that you've got it it's like no if you've got a fear it's there for a reason there's something in your brain telling you you don't feel safe about that right let's not try and block it out and ignore it let's go and do something about it let's fix it so that we stand on that start line and we feel really up for it because we've worked on that skill and and if belonging is so important to motivation, because I know a lot of people, the hardest part of of training is that either they they feel as if they're a fraud or they say they're overweight. It's quite hard to turn up at a running club if you look slower than everyone, or you you feel slow even if you're not or you don't look the same as everyone else and so does does that mean people have to because but if belonging is so important yeah that's something people should really seek out as they train but does that mean people should be very i guess aware of trying to find groups that they do think will reflect how they see themselves yeah So I would say if you're in that position, you can start off by listening to podcasts like this, where you feel you're amongst other similar people to you listening. You can join forums where you're trying to get information. There's brilliant different communities. Um, I do lots of work with Her Spirit, which is a really nice community for women wanting to try new challenges. So welcoming. You feel like everybody's on your side. Everyone wants the best for you. No judgment. Hmm. Um, I sent a client recently who was worried for exactly that thing. I'm not a runner to watch their local park run. And I was like, watch everyone that comes past. Cause there will be guys that come past you in 15, 16 minutes that look like we imagine runners look like. And there will be people that walk past you in 50 minutes that look like you might think you look like, and they are all there and you are welcome there. And when you see, and people talk about, yeah, but I've not got the right kit. 
go and watch a park run. Now, everybody's yeah. in tiny bits of lycra. Most people are there with whatever they threw on that Saturday morning that works well enough for a, a gentle jog or a walk or a run. Go and kind of find your tribe. And, and sometimes we have to, I guess, question our own stereotypes about who that tribe is. But again, that's one of the reasons I love going to watch ultra races. So many people there that don't look like they're about to go and run 40, 50 miles, but they can still do it. And that really helps us kind of go, well, there's there's a, an element of confidence. We've got 12 different sources of confidence, but one of them is called vicarious confidence. And it's the idea that somebody who's a bit like you mm. can do the things that you want to be able to do. So for me, someone like, I know, Paula Radcliffe, Jess Ennis, amazing. They're, but they don't inspire me because they're way out of my league. But someone like Sophie Rayworth, the newsreader, she does my local park run. We used to be the same speed. She's really, really worked hard and she's really dedicated and she's got much, much faster than me. And she inspires me because I'm like, okay, we, we were quite similar. If I did what she's done, I could get faster too. So actually finding our ideal is finding people who are like us, who are a bit further in the journey ahead because mm. they almost help pull us along. They help us see what's possible. Now, when when people are undertaking a, a big new challenge and they're struggling with the fear of, say, a marathon de sabs or a hundred miler or track twenty-four or or even, you know, just a just a marathon or whatever it may be. What's what's the best way then that they can try and either reduce the fear of, of how big it seems or or build themselves up to to overcome the size of the fear? I will give you three things for that. First one is chunk everything down. Anything that feels big when you look at it as one go, but if you break it down into much smaller parts, it suddenly feels much more doable. So start line of a marathon obviously feels really daunting, but it's actually eight and a bit park runs. And anyone that's standing on the start line of a marathon can do a 5K without thinking about it. So you can break it down going, well, it's like a park run, but much slower with a buffet on tap and someone handing me water and loads of people around me inspiring me. Brilliant. And you break it down that for that one, I'm going to focus on getting people to cheer my name. For the next 5K, I'm going to focus on looking for my friend that's come to watch me. For the next 5K, I'm going to make sure I've had my first gel. And you really give yourself goals for each of those chunks. I would also say be really open about those worries with yourselves, not trying to bury them, not trying to think, oh, these don't matter. I'll, I'll bury my head in the sand. I am all about being as open as possible about the fears that we have. Um, and there's a really nice piece of research that backed this up from the University of Chicago, where they took a big group of students and they got them to take a maths test. And then they split the group in half and they said to, to both groups, you're going to have to take this exam again. If you do better than before, we'll give you money. So that's a big incentive to students. They like getting cash. And they said to half the group, you can sit here, chat with your friends. You take the exam again in half an hour. And they said to the other half of the group, here's a piece of paper. 
write down all your worries about taking the exam again. The people that wrote down their worries did on average 12% better than the people that just sat and chatted to their friends. So you don't have to do anything with the worries. Simply writing them down feels a bit like taking them out of your head, releasing yourself, putting them down on paper. So do you think that was because it relieved the stress? Yeah, you've, you've, you've confronted them. So you put them down, but then in running, we can go two stages further. So we can look at each of those worries. And particularly if you do this kind of six to eight weeks before your race, you can look at each and go, how am I going to prevent that happening? Right, what am I going to be doing? So one of mine, I'm doing Paris Marathon in April. And I get really, really tight hip flexors that cause me agony during a, a race. So it might well be that to prevent that happening, I am going to see a physio, get some preventative exercises and make sure I do those exercises at least three times a week in the build up to the marathon. So I feel like I've done something that's going to prevent that fear happening. But I might still get tight hip flexors in the race because stuff happens. So then you have the if then column. That's the if it happens, this is what I would do in the moment. So rather than throwing my toys out the pram and quitting the race halfway through because I'm in pain, I might stop at the equivalent of St. John's Ambulance, get a tiny bit of massage and be able to stretch in a quiet area for five minutes before I decide if I carry on. And because we're not in panic mode, we can handle whatever that situation is so much better and we usually just carry on. So we can be really proactive with these are my worries. This is how I prevent them happening. If it happens, this is what I would do. Um, and the other thing I would do is remember that our brains are designed to be quite negative. Your brain is not designed for you to be a brilliant ultra runner. Your brain is designed for survival. That's what it cares about. It just wants you to survive at its base. And so it's designed to do whatever it can to keep you in a comfort zone does not want you to thrive. It does not want you to stretch yourself. It does not want you to go and do a 50-mile race. So it will come up with lots and lots of excuses and reasons why you shouldn't go and do that race. And so I see our job as giving it almost a fake brain, giving ourselves all those positives of why we can do this. Um, so often, I've just been working with a client tonight on creating a confidence jar. So it ends up being all the different things that you can be proud of that remind you of why you've got this. Because in the moment, and when we have our worries and fears before we go and do it, we forget all of those go out the window and all we remember is the DNFs or the DNSs or the injuries or the times things have gone wrong. We don't remember those sessions we did that we absolutely hammered it or the time we had a really difficult problem at work that we handled or... Um, those achievements that we've done along the way or the brilliant things that other people have said about us. And if we collect those together, I put them in a little jar that I post out to my clients. Every time they have any of those worries, they've just got this little jar to look through and remind them of all the great stuff they've done and all the positives. And it's a really nice way to boost your confidence. Yeah, I like the idea of that, actually. And um, well, that's probably one of those things that when you die and someone's clearing out your room and they're it's just this really massive jar of weird stuff that would make I no never sense to anyone. That. <laughs> but um, 
because you also deal with a lot of top end athletes um how how do you typically work with them and 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 what problems do they seem to come to you with? Often injury. And I think injury is such a difficult one for us because we're taught to get our heads down, ignore the discomfort, mm. and just crack on with it. And it's really hard to know whether discomfort is pain and a real injury or whether it's that voice in our head that's trying to keep us safe and telling us to stop um and that's the bit where i tend to see elites struggle is is this a real injury am i being Mm. pathetic by not pushing through it am i harming my long-term career by pushing through it um and there is no i wish there was some kind of scanner that could just tell us like this is a real thing or not. Mm. Um, But so much of it is perspective and our own body sometimes trying to keep us safe. Sometimes our body is getting stronger and the discomfort comes from that process of getting stronger or recovering and feeling confident with the choices we make around those injuries or the discomfort as we try and recover from them is probably the biggest issue that most people have. And and so where in that process with those your conversations begin, I guess, is it once they think they're maybe injured, they come to you, or is it often that they'll be like second round in to Oh, usually third or fourth and total frustration. Um I I really like there's a brilliant book by Alex Hutchinson called Endure mm. that I imagine many oh, of yeah. your listeners yeah. love. Yeah, this. we've we've interviewed Alex about it. Oh, actually. I love He's him. amazing. Yeah, it's such a good That's... author. That's the book I wish I'd written. I read the whole thing. <laughs> like Such green eyes of this book is amazing. Um, he has a lovely phrase in there about pain is information. And I mm. really like that concept of mm. how do we as runners start to see pain differently. Yeah. And, and instead of just trying to hide from the pain, which again is that kind of shut down, much more accepting of it so we can really learn our own bodies so that we can gradually learn to understand whether discomfort is good discomfort, it's bad discomfort, whether it's pain that could cause us longer term injuries, whether it's actually something that's going on because we're getting stronger or we're doing something in a slightly different way. And so much of it comes around real self-awareness. But I love that concept of seeing pain isn't inherently a bad thing. That means we should react, um, particularly as we talked about, if there's something that feels threatening, changes our body physiology. And so then the pain might feel even worse. So to be much more comfortable with noticing pain and trying to investigate it, being curious about it, finding out what information it is giving us rather than going into panic mode every time we feel kind of a twinge. But how how do you, how would you recommend translating that pain and and actually assessing what it's saying? Being really actively curious about it, so trying to get to know our body, what's causing it, almost thinking like a physio of like, well, what prompts this going on? Um, often I'll give people just go and do ten minutes. That will tell you whether it's something that's that's going to go as you warm up. Similarly Mm. with um, illness, 
those days when we're like, I cannot be bothered to go out the door. I've got home from work. It's raining. It's grim outside. I'm supposed to go and do 10 miles. Oh, I'm ill. That voice in our head gives us the, you're ill, gives us all the, all the excuses. Um, usually if we go and do 10 minutes of something, our body pretty much knows at that point, are you genuinely ill? Or was I being wimping out because it's grim and I don't want to do this? Um, and so we can often put a few rules in place that work for us to be able to identify, is this pain? Is this discomfort? Is this me feeling lazy tonight? Is this me feeling fearful of something and that's why I don't want to do it? Um, and so much of that just comes down to being really aware, self-aware of having that real internal insight of what is my body telling me right now? What's my brain trying to tell me? Is that a helpful message? Is that a message that I might want to put to one side right now? Is it a message I need to explore a bit more? And, and are there lots of, because you, you talk about almost over, being aware of what your brain's saying or, not, or trying to say, which might not necessarily be the truth of the matter. Are there, are there a lot of, I guess we call them hacks where, for example, I have a rule if I'm, I'm not allowed to walk unless um, it's faster for me to um, faster to me to walk, or I'll say I can only walk on downhills because if there's a hill coming, I think, okay, I can walk once I'm at the top of the hill. And and this obviously isn't a rule I use all the time because if there's a, a hill that's so steep that it's impossible to run, I'll walk it because it's faster. But if it's faster to run, I've always got to run unless um but I could I could walk downhills. And so I, I hit the hill and I've got this rule, and it means I'll just think, okay, I'll just get to the top of the hill and then I can walk. Then obviously when you're at the top of the hill, you don't need to walk. Everything's good. But that's that to me works better than if I say I can't ever walk because yeah. that seems just so that means I'm finishing it from here to eternity. I'm running versus here to the top of the hill. Like, are there, are there lots of things that we, sh- we can do or should do along the way, all the way through our nutrition, our training, our racing, or is it better to almost step back and think about, other motivations so that we don't have to rely on little tricks to just get us through the next little bit kind of both i i think some of it though depends on your goal if somebody is focused on i want to i mean i hate talking about winning because i don't find winning helpful i find it quite threatening to people and again that changes your physiology it becomes harder to win something but if somebody's goal is i want to become top five at that race or I need to do this in X amount of time and I want a new PB for that course. Having options that are open to negotiation can be quite tricky because Mm. in the heat of the moment, our brain will go for that negotiation option. And so sometimes in those moments, black and white rules can be much more effective. So you might have listeners that have done running streaks um, yeah. I often try and do run every day in November with a Facebook group. And I certainly know by the 16th, 17th, there is no way on hell I would have gone out running if it wasn't for the fact that I've got that Facebook group to report to and we run every day. Yeah. So if there is 
and and sometimes when I do those things, and there is some negotiation around it, so it's run 30 days or 30 runs in 30 days, my negotiation will be, oh, I'm not feeling great today. I could do two runs on Saturday. That'll count. And you start to make excuses. So sometimes if there's a goal that really matters to you and the excuses might take you away from that goal, they're unhelpful to have the caveats in place. Hmm. It is better for you to go, I will not walk, even if that might mean you're a bit slower, but to have some very strict rules in place that you are following. If the goal is about enjoying it or about how you want to do compared to where you've done in the past or those other things, then sometimes that flexibility can be really helpful. The problem is, particularly in ultras, our brain doesn't work particularly effectively because your brain is something like two to five percent of your body weight. It takes twenty percent. Two of to the five. Fuel. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not much of your body weight, right? It's small. There's more. It's for the fact that someone's only got a two percent. I guess some people are massively. I, in my head, as soon as you said that, I assumed we. I looked at a person, and one of them had a five percent head. And one of them had a two percent head. Well, no, rather than body. rather than thinking of the body, two percent or five percent. So I was like, really? Someone's got five percent head, and if I've got a two percent, so no, that makes more sense. With yeah, it's it's the brains it's not, tend the to brain be the same bigger. size. No, <laughs> brains are roughly about the same size. It's the the body shape of somebody will. Yeah, that makes make an impact of whether it's. <laughs> but so, let's go. Someone's got five percent of their their body weight is brain but your brain takes 20 percent of the energy you put in it ah. mainly carbs pretty much glucose brains yeah. are fueled by glucose if you underfuel, which will happen when we're doing a long run and our stomach starts to feel nauseous and we really don't fancy eating and we might just skip a few of the gels that we promised ourselves and that kind of thing and you underfuel your brain Instead of the prefrontal cortex, the bit of your brain that makes really good quality decisions, the bit that really kicks in is our amygdala. That's our threat system. So, And that's very emotionally driven. So when we're under fuels in a race, we are unable to make great decisions about should I run up that hill or not. We end up doing it based on emotion. And so the emotion might be for some yes, I cannot possibly not run up that hill because I might lose and I am not someone that ever loses. But it might also be someone that's very good at those head negotiations. And once you've mm. walked a little bit, suddenly it's like, oh, well, I've walked now. I might as well just carry on walking. And yeah. and I find most often when athletes do not DNF an ultra, it tends to be 60, 70 miles in. And it's usually down to the fact that they stopped eating somewhere along the way because their body didn't feel like it could cope with the nutrition anymore, which has that longer term impact on your brain when your brain just cannot make good decisions. And then at that point, your brain can't even go, oh, look, I'm I'm desperate for fuel. Feed me. Um, and you'll you'll be able to make those good decisions again. It just it gets very emotional and we make decisions that we wouldn't want to make and we drop out, even though 10 minutes break and some nutrition and we'd have probably been fine to carry on. Because so 
is that the solution? 10 minutes break is in stock because for most people that would get in that scenario, it's often because they've just shat everywhere in a bush or they've had, they, they just can't, they look at the gel and it makes them want to vom. And yeah. so the, in, it feels like the reality is you just can't take on nutrition. It's not, it's not, a cho- it doesn't feel like a choice at that stage. So is it that you, you'll say actually just step aside almost? And, it has and... to not be a choice. It has to be an absolute rule and, and have enough with you that you can pick something that feels like you could actually take it. Yeah. But it has to be a rule that, when I have used up this amount of energy, I must refill it because, and and think of it, not going to your tummy. It's not about fueling your body. It is yeah. actively about fueling your brain. So you can make a qualified decision as to whether you are out or not. Yeah. So it's, it's almost, if you are likely to get sick of these gels, what are the two other things that you can yeah, just force that, in your gob? Yeah. Have, have options of the food but it should not be an option as to whether you take the food or not. Mm. We are all guilty of it. The amount of marathons I've done where I finished with gels still in my pockets because I didn't fancy it and I'm almost like like almost like a badge of honour that I didn't need to feel so much. Um, but you can get away with that for about a marathon. Once you're getting over longer distances, you absolutely cannot, and particularly because... A big city marathon, you're you're surrounded by people that are going to keep you pushing on. Much harder to stop when everybody's telling you to keep going and you're surrounded by other people at the same pace as you. But many, many ultras, you're mm. on your own in the middle of mm. nowhere trying to find a checkpoint. It's There isn't that kind of natural support around you just to keep you going. You have to be self-motivated the whole way through. And you cannot self-motivate yourself if you've starved your brain. Uh, do we do we know how the body prioritizes between the needs of muscles and brain of varying levels of um, of energy availability? Say you've only you're only getting half the the glucose that your body and your brain needs. Would it split it fifty fifty? So ten percent goes to the brain, forty to the um, forty to the rest of the body, or it, does it does it adjust? where you almost have to have zero glucose for it not to give it to the bane or like do have we got an understanding of i don't i would love to know i'm gonna have to go and go and investigate um there are i don't know if you've had rini uh mcgregor yeah i think she's three times maybe she's probably the the person to ask she's awesome on this stuff um i don't know i'm afraid i'm but i am gonna go and find out you've you've made me curious to go and do some research well it's it's i guess it, it maybe doesn't help us with understanding we'll come to a conclusion of how to benefit from that knowledge but it's more i'm just intrigued whether if you're 20 percent down can you still work at full mental capacity because it's just your your your, your legs start to lose the the glycogen or is it is it going to hit you as soon as you're slightly below um yeah interesting and um I'm trying to think what my next question would be. So I know Damon, uh, Damo talked uh, a lot in his book about working with you towards the Pennine Way. Um, that's a really nice case of 
you, when we were speaking before, you'd said how you can't really discuss individuals because obviously you're you're tied by client confidentiality because Demo's uh, sold sold out the story. He's uh, he's monetized <laughs> his sessions with you in book form. You can go into a bit more detail, but do you want to t- do you want to take us through? Um, what you can from that that relationship and and how, what he came to you with and how you helped him. So what? So I've written about this in my book, Ten Pillars of Success, and um, in that book we take ten kind of psychological characteristics that make you successful. And there's a ton of academic research that kind of supports that. Um, and we get one well-known successful person looking at each chapter talking about how they use that as their pillar of success and Damien was the purpose chapter and I I just find his story fascinating with the Pennine way absolutely let's go and try and set a record that's what he does he runs long distances over very lumpy pieces of soggy ground but he used his purpose in life to help fuel that. And I I just find his story a brilliant way of helping people understand why that purpose is so important. So he wanted to set a new, a new record, but it wasn't just about the record. If you can think of the purpose was to have a bigger platform on which he could go out and talk about environmental issues and particularly environmental issues for athletes and what we can do to look after the planet better so that he is leaving a better planet for his kids. His kids are like that huge inspiration. And so to then really go and create a challenge around that, I found gives that extra fuel. When your body wants to lie down and go, not doing this anymore, it's a stupid thing to do and I'm totally out, it gives you that extra injection to be able to keep going. And so things that he incorporated into his challenge were having vegan food, having it wrapped in compostable wrappers, asking people not to go and drive to support or cheer on, making sure the pacers picked up rubbish along the way. So he kind of left no marks behind. Um, His big rival not really rivals in all because everyone's <laughs> too lovely yeah. but but john being out there he'd, he'd done the attempt a week before tweeting to all of his followers all the things that damien would normally be tweeting about so a whole new pe- group of people were introduced to those messages that damien wanted to pursue and i think having that purpose behind you means that when it gets really tough you are able to push forward on his own if if anyone watches the videos of it he said fff Friends, family, the future. I mean, what a brilliant thing. If that matters to you, to be able to look down when every muscle and element of your body is screaming at you to stop doing this thing because you've been running nonstop for two days, to be able to look at that and go, I know why I am doing this. And then at the end of that, set the new record, got to go on BBC Breakfast and talk about it and write a book afterwards that is based on the environmental issues for runners and what we can do about it and to have that platform to be able to go out there and share what really really matters to him the very powerful way to fuel your running um and because i i guess that's quite a specific example where it's it's easier to 
embed reminders throughout the actual race itself. To, yeah. So every time he eats, every time he makes someone a checkpoint, every time someone picks up. I mean, it it's genius in that it's just overflowing with reminders. Um, for for everyone else, I mean, I've 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 written things on my arms before and hands before and and things like that. Um, but then instantly sweated off as soon as, <laughs> as soon as I needed them. But um, what other ways are there if if, because most people are driven either by the thought of a loved one a charity um or because of some kind of longer goal where they're 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 trying to not be something anymore or how what are good ways in which they can take the the notion and actually convert it into something a bit more tangible that they can then use repeatedly throughout their training or throughout the challenge itself loads of ways um one of my favorites you said little messages when i do a marathon i will get people that matter to me to write me a little message on a sticker and i stick Mm. them on my gels um and then every time you pull one out that's nice it's lovely. My the last I haven't done a marathon in a long time. Last one I did was London Virtual, um, and my daughter was almost four, and she tried writing her little message, and it just said something like "Love you, mommy." <laughs> but oh my god, when I was at like sixteen miles, and it was torrential rain, oh. and, and, and I live in London. Everything in London was closed at that time on a Sunday morning, so I couldn't get any food or I couldn't get any drink or anything to mm. pull that out of your pocket. And go, I love you, mummy. Was like, right, I have to get home quicker to see how I am not stopping. So things like that can be very powerful. Mm. I've had athletes who things like um, will get their water bottle and they'll get all of the brownies in their pack at work, in the packet that they run to write a little message on the water bottle. And so when they get handed that, they've got all of those messages. So things from others, really powerful. Sometimes people may have a word and we'll do a lot of work. I do a lot of work with athletes on their values and the things that are really important to them. And sometimes pulling out one of those words, just a single word can be really powerful to being more of the kind of person you want to be. Have you got an example of, of those words? Yeah, a few too. Um, somebody might have a word like gratitude. They want to be more grateful about the things they do in life. It's like brilliant. One of your goals then when you're doing that ultra, say thank you and smile at every marshal and volunteer you see along the way. Just constantly remind you of the gratitude you've got for having this kind of body that means you can go out there and do something like that. Mine is brave. I have a, my husband actually bought me a bracelet that's got brave engraved on it that I wear for everything. And so all I have to do is look down and every time my, that little voice in my head's going, you can't do this, you're too slow, you're rubbish. I'm like, I don't care because I'm brave and brave people try. So little things like that can be very powerful. And that's just simply one word. Um, and a lot of people will have a mantra. We have two types of mantras we tend to have. One is instructional. And that tends to be something that improves your technique when you are really tired. So it'd be the, if you're at a track session and you're on one of your final sets and your whole body's giving in because you don't want to do it anymore. So what's the thing your coach would yell at you? Um, so mine would be head up. 
If I lift my head up, my shoulders go back, chest goes forward, hips come up higher, kick my legs higher, cannot help but run better. The other type of mantra is a motivational mantra and it's the why you're doing it. So, so that one for Damien would have been FFF. That's all you have to remember or see it on your arm and it reminds you. One of the most powerful ones I remember was I was doing a workshop um, when I very first started and it was a triathlon workshop. And there was a guy there that didn't really fit in with the other triathletes, um, but he asked if his, his mantra counted. And he told us his story that five years previously, he'd been incredibly overweight, very unhealthy. His doctor had told him he wouldn't make it to 30 unless he really sorted his life out. It was a big kick up the bum. You need to get sorted. Um, and he joined a gym. He'd gone on a diet. He'd ended up at a triathlon club. And his friends at the club had, had persuaded him to do this sprint triathlon with them. He said the swim was awful. Bike was awful. He'd got onto the run. No way he was finishing it. He was about to drop out. It was horrible. And he saw his dad who had come to watch him. And he heard his dad say to the guy standing next to him, that's my son. And he said the pride he heard in his dad's voice was like, damn it, I can't quit now, can I? And he had to run to the end. And he said, Every time he has struggled with anything going forward, all he hears in his head is, that's my son. And you can't stop when you're doing it for somebody else or because you've made them proud. Um, so often people will have it about their children. It's a very helpful one when you've had kids because that one is very pertinent to you. Sometimes we'll do it about a charity. Um, charities, if we're running for a charity that really matters to us, I always think that one is just such a superpower to have behind you. You're not just running because you want to do 26.2 miles. You're running because you're fundraising for the charity that helped your mom when she was ill. There was a, a lovely photo on Twitter a few years ago of a journalist who was running for a domestic violence charity. And she had written on her arm 26 names of women and children who were in a shelter. And so every time she got to a new mile marker, she could look down and she could see that person that she was fundraising for. And she knew those people because she'd volunteered in that, that shelter. And, and at that point, when your body and brain are going, I can't do this, all you have to do is look at a name and go, I'm doing it for them. It can be, it's, it sounds so fluffy, but it's so powerful mm. to kind of go, to be able to override that bit that says this hurts or I can't do it. You're like I am doing it because, and this matters. And are there equivalents to that we can do in the house at our desk on the fridge? And um, is it putting things in places that are visual where we're most likely to be weak during our training? Well, I haven't thought of that. Um, yeah, it can be. I mean, I. My poor athletes get a lot of stuff stuck around their houses. They might have the medal they're aiming for stuck up in the bedroom to make sure you get up and actually go for that run. And we have um, emotional maps stuck on the fridge so that when somebody asks you how you're doing, you actually find the word to describe how you're really feeling rather than the lazy words that we will use. And we have how does that work? So there are hundreds of different emotions but we tend to get quite lazy and scientists have found we tend to use about six or seven emotions all the time. 
okay. and they're like our lazy go-to emotions i'm okay i'm fine i'm angry i'm frustrated i'm tired i'm good i'm excited they're quite basic emotions when we have a basic emotion we tend to have one coping mechanism for it if i am frustrated i might go for a run that's fine but if i get frustrated four times in a day i'm going to end up with a stress fracture and no clean running kit uh, so much better is to have a much more specific emotion that I can identify. So on, on the map I've created, you might have frustrated in the middle, but you'll also have six to eight different, more specific emotions around the outside that will give you a much more specific coping mechanism that will help you longer term. So rather than frustrated, I might look at it and go, do you know what? I'm actually envious because somebody that I do my training with, that guy at the track who rocks up, seems to do no work and wins every race and then goes off down the pub. He seems to have it easy. And it's not fair because I put in all this work and it's not fair. I'm feeling envious. Right, well, what can I do about that? And you might find a much better coping mechanism that's more specific and helps you than that lazy one. And when we have much wider emotional literacy and we can use that vocabulary, we found it protects you from lots of mental health issues. So you're much less likely to have things like eating disorders or exercise addiction or things like stress fractures because you end up overtraining because you're very limited in the coping mechanisms that you use. And is there a danger that it could become a wall of negativity where you just look at this, this piece of paper of doom? You're like, no, oh, because... God. When I created it, I created, it had nine emotions on there. And then my daughter, who was only four, maybe five at the time, looked at it and went, where's excitement, mummy? I often feel excitement. I was like, God, I hate being outwitted by a four-year-old. Um, but we added excitement on. I think we've got happy on there. We've got, I think there's maybe four, what we probably see as positive emotions compared to six that are less helpful ones. Um but when we get specific, they can be more helpful. So if you're just saying angry, well, that's not particularly helpful. But when you get much more specific about something, I'm feeling thwarted. Oh, I'm feeling rejected. Okay, we can we can investigate that. Why are you feeling rejected? There's a lovely example of it, not our world at all, but um, in the 10 Pillars of Success, um, Sarah Pascoe, the comedian, was my interviewee for the chapter on internal insight. And she was brilliant. She talked about she would get, first of all, she'd get angry if she saw someone like, oh, Michael McIntyre has announced on Twitter he's got another <laughs> BBC Saturday night TV show. That yeah. would make her angry. Actually, when she looked into it, it wasn't anger. She's got nothing against him. It was envy. Mm. And you could then investigate why am I envious? Is it that I want a BBC Saturday night TV show? Is it I want the money he's got? Is it that I want the reputation he's got? Is it that I want new stuff to be able to announce? Is it that that feels really exciting and I haven't got anything exciting coming up at the moment? And when you pull it apart and you might come up with, yeah, actually, I feel like I'm not going as far in my career as I should be, you can then go, right, what am I going to do about that? I'm going to think about some things I would really like to do with my career. And I'm going to chat to my agent about how I go ahead and do those. Mm. And it's then much more proactive. 
than just, oh, it's not fair, he's got that, which is what we're all prone to do, but we can see it as a much better tool for making us do the things that are going to help us thrive. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of us are angry when we found out Michael McIntyre had another. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, uh, that wasn't envy for me. That's for sure. Well, actually, no, it probably was, actually. I'd love to have had a fine time. Here you go. <laughs> Maybe she... What are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? I'm going to start on my comedy routine. Um, there you go. Yeah, but um, interesting. So it's actually... It's, it's almost recognising... And then analyzing to understand. And sometimes understanding resolves it straight away. Sometimes it gives us a course of action. Yeah. So much of sports psychology is not, there are loads of really cool tricks and tools that we have and we can teach. But at the heart of it is understanding who you are much better, what works for you, what individual mechanisms you can pull upon what your motivation is what you love what you hate what drives you the more we have that self-awareness the easier it is to mismanipulate ourselves to to do the best that we can do it's not just somebody giving us a bunch of tools it's much more about really really deeply knowing what works for us and who we are and who we want to be who do we want to move towards when we're running yeah okay so because i'm i'm trying to think of there will be a listener probably quite a few listeners who are are just not doing much exercise beating themselves up about it and overeating out of the fact that they're frustrated that they're not doing these things that they think they want so I'm I'm saying this out loud just to help, hopefully help people with the process of. So if so, ideally then the strategy would be to think about well, why is it important to me that I exercise? What is it that I'm actually hoping to achieve from those? Or is it more what is it that's stopping me from doing these things that I want to be doing? or it's all of that so absolutely we can get curious about the excuses we are making what's behind the excuses what am Mm. i what am i fearful of there is the why do i want to do this what what kind of person will it make me do i want to be that kind of person i think really deep down for most of us it's finding something that gets us excited Mm. When when we enter that race, when sometimes we know we shouldn't, or there might be a good reason we shouldn't do it, but our tummy just twists in excitement of like, oh, I really, really want that. It is so powerful. We can then do work to set the right goals around it and all that stuff. But sometimes it's just finding the thing that gets you going with excitement. And it might if I was to say the best races I have ever done were the world long distance aqua bike champs. They were in Canada in 2017 and they were 10 months after I had my daughter. And so I'd managed to get a place on older results. And I remember. And aqua bike, my... is that cycling oh, and swimming or is it cycling? Swimming, cycling. 
Swimming no, cycle. no, no, it's swimming okay. cycling. Although, yes, my mum did find it hysterical to send me pictures of bikes that go on water. Um, and I'd, I'd got a place. And I remember at the beginning of May being weighed and looking at myself going, I am not the person that I like to be. I'm not the athlete that I feel in my head I should be right now. And I've got this race and this excites me. If I am going, if I'm taking a 10 month over to Canada, I am flipping going to do a good job of it. And I've never been so motivated. I lost, I think I had to lose 15 kilos um, to get back to kind of race shape, which I did in about three months. I, I trained every day. I have never had so much green on training peaks in my life. And I'm usually genius at making excuses to coaches. Um, and I had an absolutely brilliant race. I still remember the smile I had on my face when I crossed that finish line because I'm, it wasn't about the race, really. It was about the journey of really wanting to do something. And and I think for me and for lots of women, when we've had children, it's or a big health issue for any mm. of us, it's about trying to feel like us again. And that genuinely felt like this is a trying to be me again um, and get something back for myself after my life has changed very dramatically. And I think if if we've got something that signifies something a bit bigger for us, that's so powerful. I was um, mm. I was talking to Louise Minchin, um, the presenter earlier about something, and she said she's she's signed up for London, London Marathon, and it's her fourth attempt because injuries happened and COVID happened and all these other things. You can absolutely see when someone's been blocked from something mm. and it it finally gets back on your radar there's that i really really want this to enter something four times in a row when you've been blocked you really want it and so i'd say to anyone that's struggling with getting back into it go and find the thing you really really want mm. and 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 be brave because sometimes it's really scary to say i really want to do well in this and and it matters to me that's when our brain comes up with all the excuses because it wants to keep you safe and it's scary to admit you really want something. But that's the bit that will give you the momentum and the impetus to actually go and try. Well, I, I mean, that's just such a wonderful thing to finish on. I had, I had other questions, but actually it's just such a nice. Um, and who's, who's to say that we can only have you on once in my view, but uh, we, shall, we shall discuss that in the future. Um, well, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That's super interesting. And actually, um, the run show is in a couple of weeks, but next year we need to get you to the run show to uh, to talk to us about Brilliant. ultra psychology and, and all those elements. And, and and if people want to get in touch with with questions or if they are looking for help with um, with performance or motivation or, or any aspect of sports psychology, what's the best way for them to do that? That I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, so I'm at Josephine Perry. Um, and then I have a website which is performanceinmind.co.uk. And um, there's contacts for me on there, but there are also lots of worksheets and lots of activities um, and lots of things you can try um, on there. And is there anything else you'd like to kind of throw out uh, that you think we maybe haven't covered or be useful for people at home? I mean, we've got, we've had so many. <laughs> useful uh bits from me already but just if there was anything else that you felt we hadn't touched we're we're always here to listen Um, if you wanted to learn more about psychology of different runners um my book 10 pillars of success has um dame kelly Hines, has damien 
Um, and it also has Sean Conway, who talks about kind of ultra cycling and the approach he took around autonomy. Um, and Lucy Gossage, the oncologist and Ironman athlete, she talks about gratitude. Um, so there are lots of lots of athletes in there that you can go and, and learn then, more about their psychology. And you've seen, you said Sarah Pascoe, obviously is a massive outlier compared to those five. Who are the other four? Oh, God, you're going to test me. There is uh, Maxine Peake, the actress. Yeah. She talks about mastery. Um, Emma Wiggs is a paracanoist. She's phenomenal. She talks oh, wow. about confidence. We've got Casper Berry, who's he's really cool. He started off, don't know if you're old enough to remember this. Do you remember Biker Grove? Yeah. What do you mean I'm old enough? But wait, oh, wait, I'm too old for Biker Grove. Okay, cool. Well, <laughs> he was in Biker Grove at 16. Um, ended up as a poker player in Vegas. He's just fantastic. He talks about process over outcome. We've got Bobby Holland Hanton, who is James Bond stuntman. And he also doubles for Chris Hemsworth in all of the Thor movies. He talks about courage. And then we've got Drew McConey, who is a choreographer, dancer. Um, he talks about optimism. So it's wow. just the most, I mean, there was the luck. I feel so privileged. Audible, who created it as an audio book to begin with before it came out in print, basically said you can have 10 people that you would love to chat to and we'll go out and find them for you. And I just got the most amazing bunch of people to question and try and understand their motivations and the way they use those pillars. I mean, if that is your remit, what are you wasting runners' time in there for? I mean, runners oh, are not exciting all... enough compared to them. <laughs> no, it was a, it was genuinely like it was the most exciting part, and it, a lot of it was during lockdown where everything's quite mm. miserable. But I got to cycle off to Kings Cross to a studio to go and interview these people that just utterly fascinate me, um, and and question them. It was it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds very cool. And I feel like I'm doing that every day of myself. So yeah, I'm you doing get that, that today. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And do go out and buy that book, D Banners. Um, what's the best place for them to buy it so that you get either the, the best reviews or the most money from the sale of the book? Or are there any places that are more advantageous for you? I'm on bookstore.org. Um, and I have actually a, it's called PIM, Performance in Mind. Um, and I have a little bookstore on there of all the books that I recommend. So people like Alex Hutchinson and Jure and um, Do Hard Things and those kind of books are all on there too. Plus all my books are on there. And actually, out of interest, is there anyone you'd recommend we go out and interview um, based off the people you've chatted? Mm. I want to go and speak to that poker player because that's Biker Grove too. He's, yeah. he's awesome. Um, he also did an economics degree at Cambridge in the middle of that. Like, wow, yeah, he's really fun. What's Casper's surname? I'm going to type write that down. Casper Berry. Casper Berry. Uh, yeah, and then just out of interest, anyone else? Uh, Damo recommended you. Anyone else you'd recommend would be a good person for us to get on the body. Um, well, there's Brad Silberg and Steve Magnus who both write about high level performance. Um, they've got books on passion and doing hard things and all from the same I guess psychological perspective I use which is um, called ACT acceptance and commitment therapy so it's a very gentle but very much evidence-based of why we need to go out and push ourselves in a good way. Amazing well thank you so much for everything if there's anything we can do to help you in the future let us know and if you do have any more books on sale at any point then uh, we'll put it in the group and, and hopefully get you back on to talk about it. Fabulous. Thank you.
My pleasure. Thanks, SP. Yeah, dude, man. It's, it's been a long time waiting, having a psychologist. So we we're going to talk about sport addiction as well. We, we initially were speaking about that before we did the episode, but just so much to talk about. And uh, we we have spoken about um, sports addiction in the past. I can't remember who the, the interview was with. I'll look it up. Um, it's It was someone in the States, but... Um, Really, really interesting. And I'm going to get that book, actually. It does sound great. And I know the chapter on demo is super interesting, but I want to speak to that poker player as well. Um, what a life. <laughs> but do bad. Um, what are your thoughts on that? There's, we, I tried to ask questions that were an element about performance, but I think I think probably as ultra runners and, and just the do bad community, um, we go through waves of motivation and focus. And maybe that's what Josephine was saying at the end is that it's having those things that really excite you, that drive you. And maybe the ups and downs that you naturally have are sometimes just because we haven't got enough money to get the, the next exciting thing or because we just haven't got it lined up. Um, and we, we haven't, Life's too busy, whatever it may be. But um, we, I tried to ask some questions that hopefully will help even people that are really struggling with motivation right now, because as we all go through that. Um, but if there are any guests in the future you'd love, you'd like us to, to interview, then let me know because we go out there, we we find them, we invite them on, and, and nine times out of ten, um, we get them on the podcast as well. So any subjects, any people, write to me, David at badboyrunning.com or letters at badboyrunning.com or message me directly on Instagram. If you'd like to leave a review, that'd be wonderful because it helps us raise our profile and appear important to the potential interviewees, which then uh, makes it more likely we'll get them on the podcast. So please do that. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. But bye, 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 but bye, 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 bye. Admit I was a clone to be messing around But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town Come back Yes, and give me one more try Cause a love like this should I never ever die Come back Fuck you, buddy <laughs> <laughs>